starting with verse 1, reading through verse 9. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says the Lord God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. You may be seated. Would you join with me as we pray together and ask God's blessing on his word preached? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you, when you speak, speak with great power. By your voice, you spoke all things into existence from nothing. By your voice, you raised Lazarus from the dead. By your voice, you call us to yourself today. And so we pray that we would distinctly, by your spirit, through your word, hear your life-transforming voice. For your word has promised, or you have promised, that your word will never return to you void without accomplishing that which you intend for it to accomplish. And so, as we come to your word, teach us. Transform us, comfort us, convict us, work that we would leave here saying, we've been with God and he's changed us. So we pray this, asking for your spirit in your name, amen. Well, we've, uh, if you're joining us, we have been sort of in a short series uh, where we have been talking about the mission of the church. And really what we've said is that the mission of the church, our church in particular, but just all churches, is tied up with what God is doing in the world. It's, a, it's tied up. We don't have to sort of create a mission statement. Our mission is to join Jesus in what he is doing in the world. And we've quoted Christopher Wright, the Old Testament scholar, a few times. And Christopher Wright said it this way, that, that God does not have a mission for his church. He has a church for his mission. That God is on the move in the world. And the church is both the product of the mission of Jesus. We are people he has called to himself. Right? We're not here because we're good in ourselves. We're here because we've had to go outside of ourselves for our righteousness. We're here uh, because he has given us new hearts to believe in the gospel. He's transformed us and we're gathered together. The church is the product of Jesus's mission, but it's also the instrument of his mission in the world. 
And so oftentimes when we think about the mission of Jesus, it's often too small. It's a truncated mission. We think of what Jesus is up to in terms of personal salvation. Jesus died so that I can get into heaven one day. And I've said repeatedly that we treat that like it's an insurance policy. An insurance policy is good for calamity in the future, but is of no present value in our current lives. You hope that you don't have to cash it in, but when you do, you're certainly glad that you have it. There's no present value. Doesn't An insurance policy doesn't transform your life today. But the better way to think of the mission of Jesus is not in those categories, but in this category. Jesus came into the world to put everything that has been broken by sin right again. It's so much more holistic. It's so much more comprehensive than we think it includes personal salvation, but it also includes the renewal of creation one day. The new heavens and new earth will come down and we who belong to Jesus will be raised from the dead and we will reside bodily with him, right? It's so much more holistic. It involves things that you can touch and feel. The renewal of creation will sit and eat food with Jesus one day at a wedding supper of the Lamb. It's not just getting you into heaven so that you can have wings and fly around with a harp and have cash in on your insurance policy when Peter asks you how to get in. It's holistic. It includes the forgiveness of sins, but it also includes a day of judgment when things like genocide and sexual abuse will be avenged by the righteous one, when all will have to stand before him and give an account of things done in the body and outside. Now, the reason that we are in Isaiah 42 this morning is because it is one of the passages that is used to describe the mission of Jesus. When, when Jesus is going around healing people, again, the mission of Jesus is much more holistic. It's to take everything that's broken and put it right again. And so when he's going around healing, it's a sign that the kingdom of God is present. And when Matthew wants to tell his readers why Jesus is healing people, he takes them to Isaiah 42 to this passage and in the flow of Isaiah this is the beginning of the servant songs starting in chapter 40 the book of Isaiah makes this pivotal shift God had been announcing judgment the nations had been oppressing Israel and starting in verse in chapter 40 there's a shift in Isaiah's announcements now God is going to do something new he's going to bring about Renewal, this renewal of a sin-cursed world. And in fact, at the end of our reading in verse 9, he says this. Look, this is what I'm doing. I'm going to make new things. The former things have come to pass. This is verse 9. New things I now declare. And I tell them before, that they tell you of them before they spring forth. He's announcing this is what's going to happen. And starting in chapter 42, a character shows up on the scene a servant of the Lord, through whom God is going to bring about the renewal of the sin-cursed world. He's going to put things back together by this servant. And the servant breaks into song in verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, or the Lord breaks forth into song about the servant. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations and and, and Matthew again makes clear that Jesus is the chosen one. The one in whom God's soul delights. He is the unique one. 
He's God in the flesh. He's uniquely equipped by the Holy Spirit to do one thing, to bring forth justice to the nations. Three times in this nine verses is this what is said about the Cho, the servant of God who would bring about the renewal of the sin-cursed world. He will bring forth justice. And that's where I want to camp out today. What does it mean that Jesus brings forth justice? And what does it mean for his people to embody his mission of justice in this world? Now, we need to define our terms here because justice is one of those words that needs a little deconstructing so that we can understand what the Bible means by it. Justice, in our sort of common usage, what we mean by justice is generally making wrong things right, and we mostly use it in terms of crimes. So if someone steals something from a store, we would take them to uh, trial, they'd be arrested, take them to trial, convicted, put in jail. And we would say, because of that, justice has been done. The wrong has been made right. We've dealt with the crime. But dealing with crimes and the law is just a small portion of what the Bible means by justice. The larger category includes so much more. It, it, it really means putting all things right that are broken, making all things right, and particularly when it comes to the oppressed. So the Hebrew word that's used here for justice is mishpat. We're going to use that word because there's, uh, justice is so much laden with legal language. In our, we're going to kind of use that word interchangeably. The Hebrew word mishpat, meaning translated here as justice, is used over 400 times just in the Old Testament. It's kind of an important concept. Usually it's married to righteousness. For instance, in our call to confession, we were reminded that the Lord loves two things, justice and righteousness. Broadly, mishpat, justice, broadly means this, giving people their rights. So for instance, in the Old Testament economy, the priests were given a tithe. That tithe supported the ministry of the temple and the priesthood. And you know what they called the the tithe? They called it the mishpat of the priest, the justice, the rights of the priests. They had a right to this, to, uh, to withhold the tithe from the temple and the priesthood was in injustice. They had a right to that portion of God's money. And to understand it a little bit more, our context helps us. What is meant by this, Jesus will bring forth justice. He'll bring forth mishpat by the Holy Spirit. We need to go back to the beginning of Isaiah to chapter 1 to really understand what God is meaning by this statement that he'll bring forth mishpat, justice to the nation. See, in Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah starts with this. He's condemning the Israelites for their hypocrisy. Now, you may not be a Christian, and one of your critiques of the church is that we're full of hypocrites. And you know that God, is, God shares that critique as well. And he's critiquing the Israelites in chapter 1 for their hypocrisy. He says, you come to worship, you bring me sacrifices. You celebrate the religious festival. Outwardly, you look like a good people. But he says, it's, I hate your worship, and I've grown tired of it. 
And here's why. He calls them to repentance. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove evil of your deeds before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. And then he explains by this. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. So you get an idea of what God means by justice, by mishpat. Because he's connected it to two concepts. Correcting oppression and bringing out the rights of the fatherless and pleading the case of the widows. Why? Because they were the most oppressed and powerless within society. You could read it this way. Seek justice by correcting the oppression. Make the cause of the most vulnerable in your midst your own cause. So that the vulnerable begin to flourish. That is their right. Now back to Isaiah 42. If we circle back around here, you can see this is the thrust of the mission of God. The Messiah, the chosen one, the servant of the Lord who would become, who would later be revealed as God the Son, would be empowered by God the Spirit. And here's what he would do. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have Put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations for the vulnerable. A bruised reed he will not break. Just picture this tender piece of plant that's just got a little bruise in it. And it's so vulnerable. The Lord Jesus, look, he says, that's tender. I won't break it. The faintly burning wick, he won't quench. He'll protect it so that it doesn't, so vulnerable, it's protected. He won't let it die out. He will faithfully bring forth justice, mishpat. And he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in all the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Under the reign of Jesus, those who are oppressed and vulnerable begin to flourish because he's bringing mishpat to all the world. This is the heart of God. This is such the heart of God that it forms Israel's origin story. When Israel was asking the question, who am I? They always went back to their origin story in the Exodus. And this was their story. They were a people who were under the oppression, a vulnerable people who were under the oppression of the great superpower of the age, Egypt, who had enslaved them. And in their enslavement, they had continued to prosper under God's care because he loves the cause of the vulnerable and the oppressed. And they had grown to such numbers that Israel said there's only one way, or Egypt said there's only one way to deal with Israel. Let's kill off their firstborn sons. And so they began to commit genocide. And Israel, God came in and rescued them and brought them out of their oppression into the wilderness where they flourished under his care and then into the promised land. A land flourishing with life. This is the thrust of God's mission. 
But you see, there's a greater power that's oppressing the vulnerable in this world underneath all things. The power of sin is destroying us. It has enslaved all of the humanity. It has taken over and we are utterly helpless against it. Immediately after sin enters the world, Adam's two sons, one kills the other out of jealousy and rage. Is that not the story of humanity? Jealousy and rage and coveting. Marriages are destroyed by it. Nations go to war over it. Because this is the oppressive power that is in all of us. And we are helpless, all of us helpless to defeat the power of sin that resides in our hearts. I mean, watch the smallest of children. How many of your children's first or second word was no? You don't have to teach a child to lie, cheat, and steal. It comes naturally out of all of us. I mean, this is what Jesus did. He left the throne of heaven, came down to bear the curse for our sins, and to set us free to become children in whom God delights. He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He used his power to set the oppressed free. And he created a kingdom where he reigns so that all who are oppressed by sin can come under his loving care and be set free. That's our story. And that story should shape our sense of mission. We have to embody God's heart for justice, for mishpat in this world. I mean, the attention of God's people should be toward constantly protecting the rights of the most vulnerable because this is God's heart. It's his heart towards us. It should be our heart towards the world. Thus says the Lord, Zechariah 7, 9. Thus says the Lord of hosts. That's a military term. Render true justice. Mishpat. Here's how. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, or the sojourner. Those are people that society would overlook the most. They didn't have wealth or resources, so people would listen to them or notice them. Or Amos 5, 24, let justice, let mishpat roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. It just should come out of us with such gusto that it feels like a wave overtaking our world, rolling down the hills like an unstoppable force. Or back to Genesis 18, this is what God says to Abram, I've chosen him. You remember Abram's backstory, Abraham came, he was not not living in the land, not one who was seeking after God. God sought him, made him his own. And this is why, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Now we would generally describe, and I'm gonna kind of lay out in the next few minutes some examples of what this would look like. 
Now, we would generally describe some of what I'm going to describe. We would generally describe this as acts of mercy or charity. And here's, the, here's what I think is the problem with that kind of language. That, that when we say we use mercy or, or charity, mercy is voluntary. Charity is voluntary. It makes it sound like it's just an option. We can take it or leave it. When we give it, we should, we should sort of pat ourselves on the back and look what we've done. But we, God's changing the language. When he uses the word justice for this, he says this is their right. Those who are vulnerable and oppressed in our own world, this is their right. They have a right to this. And you are withholding their rights. Now, we, we know about rights in America. We talk about rights a lot. We, we speak a lot about our rights to free speech and our rights to bear arms. And we defend our rights. We know what this means. And, and God's saying this, this kind of stuff is not the category voluntary and mercy. This is the right of the vulnerable and the oppressed. And so God's people, God's people should take this up. Justice, mishpats demanded. Because those who are the most oppressed and vulnerable are being overlooked. Their rights are not being championed. And to not give someone their rights is a violation of God's righteousness. Oftentimes, this is what is lost at the heart of the abortion debate. Is there someone more vulnerable than a child in a mother's womb who is completely dependent on the food and drink that a mother consumes and cannot live outside of the safe confines of a mother's womb? It's an issue of justice to fight for the rights of them because they are the image of God. Let me give some other examples of the lack of mishpat as I see some of these things. I mean, this list could go on and on. I mean, we could have this conversation for the next year. One example, all around the world, human trafficking is still a thing. Slavery, by the way, is, is, uh, has, is larger today than any other time in the history of the world. We, we don't really have a keen eye for it. Little girls, particularly from around the world, are lured away from their poverty-stricken families where there's absolutely no hope of advancement in the world. And so they're lured away by sex traffickers to be sold to wealthy men for their own pleasure. And the rich are exploiting the rights of the poor instead of defending them. And it happens in our own backyard. In 2016, there were over 5,500 cases of sex trafficking reported in the United States. It's a cause that needs to be taken up. It should flow out of God's people like, a, like a, an avalanche moving down. Drive up and down Garden Street in Columbia. It runs through the poorest parts of town and you will see payday loan stores outnumbering any other business. And they work by preying on people in times of vulnerability with loans in excess of 400% interest. Now, you might think they've made bad money management decision and that's what gets them there. And that's probably true to a degree, but who of us in this room have not made bad money management decisions? We just have some margin for mistakes, some support structures, but 
Many of the poor in our city don't, and the only place they have to turn is an easy fix and a payday loan. And they're caught in a trap. Have you ever noticed the Christmas wreaths at Beautifier Downtown Square? They bring beauty and joy. And you can follow them from the courthouse. You can follow them. They line the streets to the north. They line the streets to the south. They line the streets to the west, down West 7th. But have you ever noticed that they don't go east? It's the poorest part of town. They stop abruptly at the square. I, I never noticed. I'll be honest with you. I never noticed. My, my glasses for Mishpat is terribly dull. I need my God to adjust this. And my African American brothers were just pointing it out to me one day. I said, No one notices us over here. See, Mishpat means taking up the needs of the poor and the vulnerable, but it means doing so at our own expense. You see, Israel had a very interesting system for caring for the widows, the fatherless, and the poor, the most vulnerable in their society. They embodied in these laws the mishpat of God. And this is the way it worked. God lays out these rules in Deuteronomy 15. He says, look, if you're going to do this, it's going to cost you a great deal. Let's say your neighbor had a bad go at life. Medical bills are piling up. Their car breaks down. They come to you for a loan. They don't come to the bank. They come to you for a loan. Israel, this is what mishpat looks like. Don't charge them interest. They're vulnerable. Don't prey on them. Come to their aid. And every seven years, that loan's going to be forgiven. You might not get it all back. And then, and then there's these reasonings. Here's why God says, there will be no poor among you. Why? For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. I'm going to give you so much so that you can give to those who are vulnerable. It's not that there aren't going to be any poor. He says in verse 11 of chapter 15 of Deuteronomy, he says, look, there will never cease to be poor in your land. The reason there won't be poor is because you're going to be a people who embody mishpat. And what that looked like is when you harvest your field, leave the outer edges of it. Don't go after maximizing your profits. You could make a lot more money if you harvested your entire field, but don't do that. Leave the outer portions because there will be vulnerable people. And here's how I'm going to take care of them. I'm going to bless you so that you, out of your wealth and power and influence, can be a blessing to the most vulnerable in the kingdom. You see, this really is the economy of God's kingdom. This is what justice looks like in the gospel. This is what Jesus says. I'll do this. I will earn a record for you because you're too vulnerable to earn it for yourself. If God's wrath were poured out on you, you could not bear it. So this is what I'll do. I'll bear it in your place. Paul picks this up. In 2 Corinthians 8, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's the heart of the gospel. God, the Son, didn't just leave the corners of his field, but gave all of his riches to us when we are yet sinners. 
by implication. Paul then takes this and says, look, there, there are needs among you. And I don't mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, you hear that justice language, equity? Your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your needs so that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever, whoever gathered little had no lack. I mean, to be a people, be a people of justice is just so terribly costly. So let me take us to one last justice passage in Micah 6, 8. Because this really embodies for us the marrying of this together. Because to live like this, I'm telling you, in my eye, as God has opened my eyes over the last couple of years to stuff like this, I'm just like, man, this is really hard. This, this is really hard stuff to figure out. This is really hard stuff to do. I don't even know what it means sometimes to have my heart reoriented this way. Micah 6.8 reminds us the kind of power that enables a life of justice doesn't come from us alone. I don't want to lessen the weight of justice. I want to raise it so that we would despair of ourselves and go outside of ourselves to Jesus. Micah 6.8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That's, this is the heart. You see, the gospel isn't go and do. The gospel is Jesus has done. Now go and do. And it's captured here in, in Micah 6, 8 because the word for kindness, sometimes translated mercy, isn't go do mercy. Don't go love doing mercy. It's the, it's the word for, it's the Hebrew word for God's covenant love, his special redeeming love, his overflowing lavish love that he has for his people. Go do justice. Here's your motivation. God loves you at your worst and showed you mishpat and walk humbly with him. That's power. Objects of God's justice are driven to do mishpat. Let me close with this. Mark Gornick lived in Sandtown, Baltimore. He was a pastor there. He had graduated from Westminster Theological Seminary and moved into Sandtown, Baltimore. Sandtown is one of the most vulnerable, oppressed parts of Baltimore. Typical things that had caused this, largely African-American, which meant that redlining, where banks had drawn part, red lines around certain parts of town, says we're not going to make loans there to certain people of ethnic race. Redlining had segmented it out. Whites had moved to the suburbs, which took away jobs and college degrees. That flight also left educational institutions without adequate funding or attention. No one cared. No one cared about the inner city. It's just a typical story of the inner city in most places. And so this is what Gornick did. He saw it. He moved in to Sandtown. It's funny aside. He said, he said for the first few years that he was there, the... 
the people of Sandtown thought he was a, a police officer, so they wouldn't trust him, and the police thought he was a drug dealer, so they wouldn't trust me. He said, I couldn't win with anybody. And this is what he said. This is why. He says, while the message of the world is that all who dwell in the inner city are unworthy, unclean, and unneeded, the gospel is a message of acceptance based not on the works of the law, social status, or position, but on divine mercy and love. So he moved into Sandtown to be an advocate, to be a presence of mishpat. He caught the attention of the Yale professor, Miroslav Volf, he was visiting one day, and they're walking around Sandtown. And basically what Gornick did is he just said, look, there's, there's a nine by five block square. We're, gonna, we're just going to seek to be a blessing. We're not going to try to change all of Baltimore. We just got this little corner of creation, but we want to bring Mishpat to it. Miroslav Volf walking around with them, at, talking, and he said, this is what... Gornick, the pastor, said to the Yale professor, he says, justification by grace, the gospel, contains untapped resources for healing. And Wolf's taken back. He's like, this, is, this stuff is dead doctrine. This is the kind of stuff that, that academic elites talk about. How is there, how is there untapped resources for healing in, in this particular part of the gospel? How does this... How does this, he's thinking, he's like, how does this imply, bring the implication for the kind of justice, the mishpat that Gornick is bringing? And so he sat and he just bothered by it and he thought about it for a long time. And this is what he said. It's a lengthy quote, but it's worth reading. This is what Wolf said about how the gospel can literally, through God's people bringing justice, can really change a place. He says, imagine you have no job, no money. You live cut off from the rest of society in a world ruled by poverty and violence. Your skin's the wrong color. and You have no hope that any of this will change. Around you is a society governed by the iron law of achievement. It's gilded good or flaunted before your eyes on TV screens. And in a thousand ways, society tells you every day that you are worthless because you have no achievement. You are a failure. And you know that you will continue to be a failure because there is no way to achieve tomorrow what you have not managed to achieve today. Your dignity is shattered. Your soul is enveloped in the darkness of despair. But the gospel tells you. It tells you that you are not defined by outside forces. It tells you that you count. Even more that you are loved unconditionally and infinitely. Irrespective of anything you have achieved or failed to achieve. Imagine now this gospel not simply proclaimed. But embodied in a community. Justified by sheer grace, it seeks to justify by grace those declared unjust by a society's implacable law of achievement. Imagine further this community determined to infuse the wider culture along with its political and economic institutions with the message that it seeks to embody and proclaim. This is justification by faith. A dead doctrine? Hardly. 
That's the mission of Jesus. Let's embody that to our city. Let's ask God to to raise our radar where it's just become so dull. Let's see ourselves as bruised reeds who the one who gives justice didn't break but instead healed so that we could be people from whom justice rolls down. Let's pray. God, I would ask, would ask that you would make our hearts more like your own. That you would forgive us for being so individualistic with our sense of the gospel and its implications. That you would build into our lives an awareness of the needs of the vulnerable in our own city. That your kingdom might be for the healing of the nations. And your kingdom might bring justice where there is oppression. For we pray this, our Savior, in your name. Amen.